We're going to be in Ephesians 6, verse 14, and just part of verse 14, the second half of verse 14, where it says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And I thought that specifically, as we look at this topic of spiritual warfare, I've chosen only this one part of the armor of God, mainly because it's been so much on my mind, that is spiritual warfare, but spiritual warfare in a normal, everyday sense. And what I mean is this, and I have shared this before. Normally, if I'm talking about the Bible or spiritual things or especially spiritual warfare and people learn that I used to live in India, then often they will say, well, that's a place that you must have seen lots of spiritual warfare. You must have really been engaged in spiritual warfare all the time because there are so many idols. And and there would be. You know how we have the nativity scenes during Christmas? They have the same exact thing, but with idols. In fact, where we met for one of our churches, and I'm not exaggerating, you only had enough space to open up the door. If this was the front door, we had to go out of the front door of our church, and the door would open up, and right here would be a float, and on a, like a little stage, a movable stage, and on that stage, there would be a type of nativity scene, but with Indian idols. Okay? And so... As I describe that to different people, they would say, wow, that, that's really a lot of spiritual warfare. And yes, I, I think so. Or when people think of spiritual warfare, they might think of, you live in the Northwest. You, you, you live near Seattle. Do you know that I think Oregon and at least the west side of Washington are permeated with witches and, and, and witchcraft to some degree. And so so is, uh, of all places, so is Orlando. There's a place right outside of Orlando called Casadega. It's a whole community of, of, of witches and fortune tellers. And when I was young, younger, when I was 18, we used to go around in my friend's car that had these big, huge speakers, and we would put on Petra and drive around this neighborhood because we were trying to combat the evil spirits. And so we would turn up Petra music, beat the system, things like that. More power to you, Uh, Daryl Mansfield. These are all different examples of how people think of spiritual warfare. There were books written by Frank Peretti, very interesting, entertaining books about how there are angels overhead and they're fighting and duking it out. Angels against demons for your soul, for your happiness. These are many different ways that we think about spiritual warfare. Some may be correct, some may be wrong, some may be exaggerated. I often find from my wife and I the time that we argue the most. Do you as husbands and wives ever argue? For those of you that aren't married yet, will you ever argue? I One time I counseled this these, this couple for marriage counseling, and they made a commitment. We're never going to argue. 
that lasted. I was like, so you've never argued ever in your dating, in your courtship? You, you've never ever argued? No. And I said, well, I think you're lying. <laughs> Somebody's lying. <laughs> of course you've argued to some degree. But I think the time when my wife and I argue the most is when? It's either Sunday, uh, Saturday night or Sunday morning. <laughs> and Thomas is looking at me like, <laughs> holding me accountable. Is dad going to tell the truth or not? It's true. Either it's Saturday night or Sunday morning, we argue the most. And so I, I look at that, and sometimes I can think that that is spiritual warfare. And to a, a certain degree, it, it is. However, one of the main battlegrounds of spiritual warfare is here that we see in Ephesians 6.14. And it deals first with truth. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. What does the Bible say about life, about God, about yourself? And then secondly, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And so I would define this as justification. So I'm saying all that in the introduction to say that oftentimes we can approach spiritual warfare in a wrong sense. Thinking only that spiritual warfare is a heightened sense of satanic attack, and, and certainly it is. But if you're a smart enemy, if you're a smart opponent, then you don't want to always go directly at the enemy. You want to flank your opponent and come to the side or behind them. And that's often what Satan would do. If you look at the text, and if you go on up to verse 11... It says, put on the floor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the what of the devil? The schemes. So Satan has many strategies. I think the Greek word, I don't have my Greek text with me, but I think it's method or dois or something like that, close to that. Or maybe it's the word for stratagems. I think Brett has it. It is the word that we get a word methods or, or, or these different strategies Satan has many different strategies. And some of those are not always this direct, in-your-face, frontal attack. Remember, Satan, he's an angel of light. So he has many deceitful schemes. Though, of course, we wouldn't put it on a par with Scripture. There was a good book that I I like to occasionally read by C.S. Lewis called Screwtape Letters. And it's rather humorous. But also, I think he has some good insights into spiritual warfare. It's not a Bible study. It's not an exegetical book on spiritual warfare. But he has some good human observations on how the devil attacks us. And one of those ways, I believe, is that we see here in verse 14 that deals with justification. The breastplate of righteousness. So what I want to do with the time that we have is, and if you look at your notes, first to make some observations, and then we'll ask, what is justification? And then how is a person justified? And I may have mislabeled uh, some of our notes, miscounted. And then we'll do some applications. Now, some of this is review, so I'm going to try to go through it quickly. But I think this is often missed out in spiritual warfare this idea of justification. And Martin Lloyd jones in his sermons on this section, he has at least three sermons on the breastplate of righteousness. 
And there actually are really good sermons, and I would recommend to you his volume of sermons. He has two volumes of sermons on chapter 6, 10 through 14. I would recommend the second one. They're very helpful. Martin Larry Jones. So let's make some observations. First off, this context is spiritual war. Spiritual war. You can see in the text, verse 12, for our struggle. And it's this idea of personal struggle. Thomas and I like to wrestle at home. We'll wrestle and try all these different moves. And he's getting better and better. And now he can be very aggressive and, and almost pin me. He's strong. It's this idea of face-to-face. And you, you're, you're grinding it out. You're on the, you're on the mat and, and you're wrestling. One time, there was a, it was Elizabeth Elliott. She came to Grace Community Church. And she met with our youth pastor there, Rick Holland. And Rick Collins said to her, there's this young man and young woman, and they're struggling with purity. And she said, they're not struggling, they're just disobedient. Now, what she said is, it's correct, they are being, they were being disobedient. But at the same time, they were also what? They were struggling. <laughs> and this text says that here. We, we, we do struggle with temptation. All of us do. In one sense, yes, when we succumb to that temptation, then that is disobedience. But here, God through Paul is saying the reality is that we all are wrestling hand-to-hand intense spiritual conflict. Not simply with each other. If we argue with people that we love there's in a way that is sinful... Then behind that, there is a system of thought that, that's evil that we've believed, and even there is remaining sin that's within us. But even there's a, a devil that could be instigating, to some degree, all of that. So the context is spiritual warfare. But I would say, too, when you look at the book of Philippians, note in chapter 6, verse 10, it says, finally. It's not finally like the least important thing. But rather, Paul is saying, summarizing all that I've talked about, here's what's going on. That is, when you look at Ephesians 4 through 6, it's very practical. He says, don't lie, speak the truth in chapter 4. Put aside wrath and anger. Forgive one another, be kind to one another. Don't get drunk. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. So a husband laying down his life for his wife and doing that with love, that's spiritual warfare. And so here at the end, Paul then is seeking to summarize the Christian life for the believers in Ephesus and is saying everything is spiritual war. And one means to... Confront this, you can see in verse 10, 11, be strong, put on the full armor of God. Verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God. Verse 14, stand firm. One means to stand firm is having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And this is an adverbial participle. It's the idea of stand firm, therefore. The means to do that is by girding your mind, the loins of your mind with truth. Secondly, it's also you can stand firm by the means of wearing this breastplate of righteousness. 
Paul is sharing with the believers the means to stand firm, to be able to win in spiritual warfare, is that you have to have the breastplate of righteousness. Now, I would say this breastplate of righteousness is justification. Justification. It's kind of a big word, but in the English, we have several words. We have righteousness, we have justice, we have justification. All of these different words come from the same Greek word, dikiaisune, and it basically means conforming to a standard, conforming to a standard. So when God holds somebody accountable and he sends them to hell, that's his wrath, but that's his justice. He's holding them accountable to his righteous standard. If a person is living a righteous life, they're conforming their life to God's standard. Justification is God credits to a person's life that that person has conformed to their righteous standard. But it all comes from the same word, and we'll talk about that later. But then in terms of observations, fourthly, we can say this. This is essential so as not to get severely damaged. But when you look at verse 14, it says the breastplate of righteousness, and the breastplate of righteousness would be based upon the Greek, uh, the, the Greco-Roman armor that would cover the essential area of the chest up right above the, the chest right here. The vital organs. And that most likely is what's being communicated here is in order to have a vital Christian life, you must have an understanding, an appreciation of, a delight in, a, a trust in of the righteousness of Christ applied to your life. If you don't have that, then you're going to be really damaged in spiritual warfare, which is the Christian life. It's vital to understand the how and why of justification. Again, we can think of spiritual warfare as maybe, uh, have you ever been woken up in the middle of the night and been tempted with something? Maybe anxiety? I have. That is spiritual warfare. At the same time, spiritual warfare can be much more subtle. And it can deal with this doctrine, this understanding of how is a person justified? How, How was I justified and how does that work out? That's not my suggestion. That's what verse 14 is saying. That we stand firm by by being sure we have done this action. Now, then second, what is justification? Specifically, what is it? Again, I'm saying that when it says the breastplate of righteousness, it's the idea of the righteousness of Christ applied to a believer's life, which is justification. But what does that mean, justification? Now, we've gone over this somewhat recently, but just as a review, a reminder, it's that perfect righteousness of Christ accredited to the believer's account. What doesn't belong to you, but belongs to another, God gives it to you. Christ gives you his righteousness, and he gets what? Your sin. Not necessarily fair. (laughs) Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 states this very clearly. Second Corinthians five, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is justification. Our Romans 
4, 24 to 25, but for our sake also, to whom it would be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. And Romans 4, 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accredited as righteousness. So we can say this then. Sometimes the word justification has been defined as just as if I never sinned. Have you heard that before? Just as if I never sinned. I've heard that in seminary and college at different churches. Now, as far as that goes, uh, yes, okay, but it doesn't go far enough. It's not just as if I never sinned. To say it better, we could say it this way. Rather, it is that perfect righteousness of Christ that is accredited to the believer's account with God. That is, it's not just as if I never sinned. Rather, it's as if I had perfectly obeyed God my entire life. God considers that me, a sinner, have perfectly obeyed God my entire life, from birth all the way until I die. That's justification. And that's why there are some groups like traditional, I would say consistent Roman Catholics would say that that is a fictional justification. My cousin was a very committed Roman Catholic, and we would argue about this point, and he would consider it a fictional justification, meaning you, you don't really have that. And I would say, correct. <laughs> but it was a gift that was given to me by Jesus. That's why it's called an alien righteousness. Some call it an alien righteousness. It doesn't belong to me. It's given to me. And it's given based upon Romans 4.25, based upon his substitutionary death, verse 25, he died in my place. And then he rose again, verifying Romans 4.25, verifying and proving that his death on a cross satisfied the penalty of God, and God accepted that, and so Jesus Christ then rose again from the dead, justifying all who believe in him. So then, we can say, I'm on uh, 3B under 2A. We can say then, I'm trying to summarize, this justification that God considers the believer as having obeyed his word, as having conformed to God's character and God's creed, God considers that believer as having done that 100%, because it's that obedient life of Christ that's given to the believer's life. Did Jesus ever sin in thought, deed, or word? No. And so that righteous life is given to me, to all who trust in Jesus Christ. So if we be, we could say that this justification is complete, instant, objective, and forensic. Complete meaning the moment you are justified, you're fully justified. We can grow in our sanctification. We can grow in becoming more like Jesus. But we don't grow in our justification. 
because Jesus Christ already lived his life and that full life of righteousness is given to us. Second, similar, is it's, it's instant. It's done. Complete, that means it's not lacking. Instant would be more of this idea of, in a moment, objective, meaning you don't necessarily feel justification, and we're going to talk about this more later. Certainly we feel uh, emotion when we're saved, I think, and throughout the Christian life we feel emotion. Rejoice again, I say rejoice. However, you don't necessarily, you don't necessarily feel justified. And we'll talk about that more later. This is something that happens outside of you. It is personal, but we'll talk about in a few moments, that this is something that you don't... It's not that the Holy Spirit is coming inside of you, necessarily always making you feel justified. And that is, you can... Look at your notes on 3B. It is forensic. This is more dealing with a legal standing. Again, there's much emotion in the Christian life, and emotion is important in the Christian life. But justification deals with your legal standing before God. Justification deals with your legal standing before God. And so justification is where God says, legally, Tom, if I was before his throne, he would say, Tom, because of my son, I consider you 100%, not not just innocent of this crime, but you have obeyed all the law, all the time, 100% fully because of my son. So your legal standing is accepted and, and even honored because of your full obedience. Not that I never sinned, but that fully obedient, righteous, glorious, victorious life of Christ is applied to me. And that's how God sees every believer that trusts in him. That's why I'm saying it's legal. My legal standing before God is no longer am I under the wrath of God. The Old Testament, Nahum 1, seven, Exodus 34.7, by no means were God let the guilty go unpunished. Because God's holy, he must punish sinners, right? But no longer am I under, or any believer, under that furious canon of the fury of God, but rather, Thomas is not just me, is not just innocent, but he fully obeyed. That's the lenses, that's the legal declaration over every believer's life. Which is tremendous. Now, 3A in your notes, it might say 2A, and I apologize for that, but it should be 3A. How is a person justified? And we've gone over this, so I'm not going to go over it in super detail, but Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, I have been justified by faith. Romans 4.5, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Who does God justify? That person who is ungodly or that person's godly? God justifies the ungodly. And so I've said before, when you have Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses come to your door, 
I've asked them in the past, can you give me, since you're going door to door, please give me three to five verses on forgiveness, right? You're going around to different homes, knocking on the front door. I appreciate that you're doing a mission. I was a missionary to India. So then you must understand forgiveness. Please give me three to five verses on forgiveness. And then normally they say, well, you give us three to five verses on forgiveness. Sure. So then I give them some verses on forgiveness. And I say, can you answer a question for me? Does God justify the godly or the ungodly? And then normally they say, God justifies the godly. And then you just share with, with them Romans 4, 5. And then try to sweetly tell them, you know, I, I think you've been deceived and you don't understand the gospel really. Here's the gospel. Please consider it. That is, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And my Roman Catholic cousin, we would talk about how he would believe that you're justified by grace through faith in Christ. He would say, yes, 100%. 100% he agrees with it. But if I say, if I said to him, you're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then he would say, no, that's, that's not what I believe. Because he'd believe in, in, in a works mentality, in a works salvation. And again, I forgot to say, if you have questions, please raise your hand and we'll try to answer those questions. So we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that's an important distinction. Because you can put two religions, as we've said, you can put every religion into two different categories. Either human achievement or divine accomplishment. Human achievement or divine accomplishment. Even many Christian denominations can be placed into human accomplishment. Instead of divine, sorry, human achievement. Instead of divine accomplishment. So justification is based upon divine accomplishment. Now, having said all that then, we're going to try to spend the remainder of our time on applications that should be 4A, applications for our struggle against sin, temptation, and Satan. Because in context then of, of Ephesians, this is dealing again with a struggle. It's something that's uh, deeply personal and it's hard and it's difficult when we struggle against sin and temptation and Satan. And he quotes, I mean, he quotes from the Old Testament, Paul does when he's listing this armor, the breastplate of righteousness is talked about in the book of Isaiah 11.5. But in context of Ephesians, then how, how do we apply this? Because he says, stand firm. So don't succumb to Satan's temptation, understanding that justification, that I've been fully accredited, 100%, that the full obedient life of Christ by grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone. How is that really going to help me? And so just... Very quickly, then, with the time that we have. So, number one, then, we would say applications is be, be sure you're you're justified, <laughs> right? Be sure that you're not trusting in your own works, but rather the work of Christ to get you to heaven. And you can write down Luke eighteen fourteen and think of the publican and the Pharisee, the, the tax collector, and maybe you could say the seminary professor 
And that seminary professor in Luke 18, the Pharisee, said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this traitor. I thank you that I haven't committed adultery, that I haven't cheated, that I haven't lied, I haven't been a traitor. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually a pretty good person compared to this tax collector that was a traitor to his nation and even his people. And a tax collector said, Lord, atone for my sin. When it says, have mercy on me, it's the word halaskomai in Greek, which means atone for my sin. The tax collector simply says, Lord, I'm, I'm a terrible sinner. Please save me. And then Jesus says, which of those two men went home? Saved. Which of those two men went home justified? The tax collector. Morally, who is a better person? Horizontally, who was the better person? The, the, the Pharisee. He didn't go home justified. He went home damned. But he was a better person. Because his hope was in what he did. Whereas the tax collector was saying, I can only hope that God will provide a payment for my sin. And so we have to be sure that we ourselves have not trusted in our work, but rather in his work. Yes, please. Yes, amen. He was right there. <laughs> maybe he had, I don't know, 30 minutes or maybe three hours. He, he could do no deeds to be justified. He just said, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And, and that was it. And there was some years ago, I've mentioned this to you before, I took too much B12 for two weeks and all my muscles and my heart and all this was racing and I thought I was going to die. And there was some fear that I had because in my mind I was thinking, I haven't done enough for the Lord. And I felt convicted about that. I felt convicted, in other words, that instead of resting in the finished work of Christ, I was too concerned about what? Doing. I got to do more. Otherwise, the Lord's going to be unhappy with me. There could be some truth of that, but rather on death's door, I need to be resting in that full justification that I have by faith with God. Romans 5.1, I have peace with God. Not because of, I did more ministry, but because of Christ did 100% successful life, and that's been given to me by grace alone through faith alone. Yes? They've done no work to get to heaven. Yes, and so we need to be sure that we have an understanding, again, of grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, and be sure that our hope is in Christ, because that's where Satan will attack. Yes? Yes, yes. Let's say it's a cliche as an example. Let's say uh, an evil man like uh, Genghis Khan or, or Adolf Hitler 
Um, there was a mass murderer. I just forgot his name. I think he was executed in Florida. I, I forgot his name. But he, but he came to Christ when he was on death row. Do these people that commit horrible atrocities, if before they die, they say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Please save me. I was wrong. I'm evil. Please forgive me, Lord. Will they go to heaven? The Bible says in him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from how many sins? All sin. Like my my dear father, I shared the gospel with him a few years before he died. And he said, I don't want that Christ. And before he died, he prayed the sinner's prayer with my brother. If he was sincere, then I'll see him with the Lord. So that's our hope. And so what, what, what great hope we have, it's not on what we have done or will do, but on what Christ already did. That's the gospel hope. And all the sins that people have committed and we have committed can be wiped away. And so we praise him for that. And Satan will attack us in this area. And so we have to realize that our the security of our salvation is not based upon what we have done or will do, but based upon what Christ already did. That's, that's why our security is, is sure, it's firm. Security of salvation is not rooted in us, it's rooted in Christ. A second application is stay humble by preaching justification to yourself. There's much power through a biblical humility. God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. By the way, Jesus even says that when he's talking, when he's given that parable about the Pharisee and the, the, the publican. Preach justification to yourself. What do I mean? Well, I mean this. You're... You're not going to hell because you're the worst sinner. But you're not going to heaven because you're the greatest Christian. You may not be the worst person ever on the planet Earth, but you also are not the best person ever on the planet Earth. If God were to let you into heaven only by your good deeds, where would you go? Hell. I would. I would go to hell. Because Galatians 3 I think it's either verse 10 or verse 13. says, Cursed are those who don't obey all that is written. Have you obeyed all that is written? I haven't. My son knows I haven't. (laughs) I haven't. I don't, so I'm condemned. But in that same passage, it says that Jesus has become a curse for us. And so this is is humbling. And it, it can whether it's a marriage or whether it's parenting or whether in the church or at work or or in our neighborhood, it's not that God is favoring me because I'm so obedient. Am I a... Am I head of my wife in terms of going to heaven because I'm such a great person? No. No, I'm a sinner and I would deserve to go to hell. I'm only going to heaven by His grace through faith, he gave me that righteousness of Christ. And that, that, this puts us all in the same boat. How did Charles Haddon Spurgeon go to heaven? Because he was better than you? 
How did the apostle Paul go to heaven? Because he's better than you? How did John the Baptist go to heaven? Because he's better than you? Was Abraham better than you? Was Jacob better than you? <laughs> right? Was David better than you? King David, he committed adultery and was a type of a mass murderer. Not just uh, is it Isaiah, Uzziah, and his friends. There are people that were better than and there are people that were not better than. But all of us get to heaven by one means. Only that righteousness of Christ applied to our life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And so that, that humbles us. Because oftentimes it's our pride that can lead us into sin. So we stand firm. I'm standing firm, not based that I'm such a righteous person on my own. I'm standing firm in the righteousness of Jesus and him. And this leads us into this third application that we can make. You stay in the Bible, you stay in the word and prayer, because your relationship to God is unassailable. Again, Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why I bring this up is, for me myself, I've experienced this, and I've talked to others that have also experienced this, You can feel so guilty because of sin, maybe, that you shouldn't read the Bible. Or you shouldn't pray. Have you ever felt that way? I, I know I'm not the only one, because I've talked to some that have felt this way, too. There can be times I committed this sin, or sins, and I'm struggling with it. So, I'm too dirty to read the Bible. I'm too dirty to pray. And then you don't read the Bible, and you don't pray, and then your relationship to God suffers because you're not in the Word and you're not praying, which are pillars for the Christian walk. But the Bible doesn't teach us that we read the Bible or pray because we're perfect. Rather, we read the Bible and pray because it's a means of conviction. It's a means of cleansing. It's a means of of growth. But I have that perfect righteousness of Christ applied to my life. So even when I'm doing bad in terms of pursuing Jesus, God is not looking at me going like, Tom, you're a filthy, dirty cockroach. I hate you. I'm going to turn my back on you, you scum. Is that how God thinks of you? No, you're a dear child. He loves you. He looks at you, believer, and says, you have the righteousness of Christ. You're struggling. I'm going to help you. Why? Because you're justified. And this peace that you have in Romans 5.1 isn't primarily, it involves, but it's not primarily subjective. It's primarily objective, meaning that you don't have a hostile relationship with God. God no longer has this canon of fury, but rather arms of love wrapped around you. Because you're like his son. Because you're in Christ. This is why in Ephesians, I think, Ephesians 3.12, it says, In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Even if, especially when I'm struggling with sin, I should be praying. And I can have boldness and know that I can access God through prayer face to face. 
through faith in him. The him is Christ. What does it mean? Ephesians 3.12, through faith in him. I think it's, that is, that I have faith in Jesus, that I have his perfect righteousness. So when I come to God, I'm not coming to God like the Pharisee, look how good I am. I'm coming to God going, God, look how bad I am. I need more of you every single day, Lord. I need cleansing, forgiveness, and renewing. I need you, Lord. Forgive me, mold me, shape me. Be with me, Lord. Thank you. And so I can still pray and I can still read the Bible because though I do sin, my legal standing before God is 100% you fully obeyed me through Christ. I love you. I'm for you. You can do better, Tom. (laughs) Fourth, just talking about ways that I think Satan can attack us in ways that we can use this doctrine of justification. And I think this is where it can get subjective or where it can get emotional. We should seek a joyful state of our soul. We should seek a joyful state of our soul based upon justification. Go back to Romans 5 and note how it goes from objective then to subjective. Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When is relationship of love because of what Christ did for us. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith and to his grace in which we stand and we exult. Now it's becoming more subjective, more emotional. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulation. Because through our tribulation, we have this knowledge that God's going to work. And even he's pouring out his love into our hearts, verse 5. And we know that God has poured out his love into into our hearts. He's going to keep pouring out this love into our hearts because of the gospel. Though, verses 6 through 9, though we were hopeless and helpless and hostile, that's when Christ died for us on the cross. Then verse 9. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, by his death, given his perfect life by his death and resurrection, we're going to be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if we were enemies, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by his life. Now verse 11. And not just this, but also we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have now received the reconciliation. So from verses, really from the end of verse 2 all the way to the end of verse 11, there is this subjective feeling of God's love, but even exhortation in God, because he did so much for us by the death of his Son, by the death and resurrection of his Son, to save us, how much more is he going to keep us saved and give us really a forever of glory? is the whole idea of verses 1 through 11. So I think we can think of it in this light. Is it? And we've mentioned this before when we went through the book of Ephesians. When you die and believer and go to heaven, it's not going to be like... And you turn around and like your backside's on fire. Like, whoa, I just barely made it. Woof. Put out the fire. 
you just barely, barely made it into heaven. My wife, she made it by 10,000 miles ahead of me. I, I almost went to hell. It was just like, I got to heaven just by the skin of my teeth. That would be a lie in the pit of hell. When you get to heaven, you're going to get to heaven by a billion, trillion, trillion times, trillion miles. It isn't that you're just going to barely make it to heaven. You're going to make it to heaven so well, you're going to reign with Christ. Do you do you and I understand that? That is because you get into heaven, not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did. And Jesus sits down where? At the right hand of the Father. It's not saying that God's not going to have any type of judgment for us, like for our rewards and for our crowns, 1 Corinthians 3. But there is a true sense in which because you have that righteousness of Christ, when you get to heaven, God's not going to give you the cold shoulder and be like, you stunk it up pretty bad, Tom. (laughs) I had a hard time with you. You're standing before God. The way he looks at you is and treats you, you had 100% of the righteousness of Christ on your life. Now, bad things may happen in your life. It's true. Did bad things happen in the life of Jesus? Pretty bad. (laughs) But it ended gloriously. And that glorious ending, in a similar way, not an exact way, but in a similar way, is yours when you're in Christ. Satan will come and try to take away your joy, that you're not good enough. Is that true? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so when Satan says to me, through temptation, you're not good enough. True. You're wretched. That's also true. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> I am such a wretched sinner, I deserve hell. But I exult in Jesus Christ. Thank you, devil, for giving me the opportunity to exult in the gospel. I'm not impressed with myself. I'm impressed with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And by his grace, he saved me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I'm not good enough to get to heaven. That's that's true. <laughs> 100% true. Thank you, Lord, though you still save me in Christ. These are ways that Satan can attack us, and so we need to, to fight him. Even, fifthly, we... we fight sin and Satan standing in his righteousness and not in our own righteousness. We always must have this conception that I'm not doing battle because of how much progress I've made. There Now, there is a sense, you know, uh, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee you for lust and pursue righteousness, faithfulness, and purity. Right before that, it talks about if you want to be useful, you'll be sanctified, set apart from immorality. The more godly we are, the more useful and ministry we can be to the Lord. That is true. However, I don't rest in my achievements and in my accomplishments to do battle with the devil. If I'm going to battle Satan and I'm going to be going, look at all the ministry, look at all the things I've done. For the Lord, look at all the sin I've overcome, Satan. 
You're coming at me. Look at all that I've done for the Lord. I start doing that with the devil, then it's very easy. So, Tom, was your repentance here full? When you did all these deeds, did you always have good motivations? Are there any secret sins in your life, in the closet, that nobody else knows about? I know about them. And it was on these claims I make that I'm going to battle Satan and have progress. I'm such a good Christian. I'm going to stay. And Satan, though he's not omniscient, he's not omniscient. He can. He and his demons can know a lot about me. And they know where I'm weak. And so I don't boast in me. I boast in who? In Christ. That's why Philippians 3.3, Paul says, I glory in Christ Jesus and place no confidence in the flesh. So when I'm fighting Satan, I'm not, I'm such a good Christian. Look how I've repented. Look at all the advancements I've made. I'm simply glorying, as Paul says in Galatians, I glory in the cross of Christ. And when I do that, the Holy Spirit is happy and he fills me and then I'm walking in the Spirit and then I'm empowered by his Spirit. This is really spiritual warfare where where Satan can attack us. We're going to stop here because of time. Again, I would recommend to you, it's the second volume of sermons by Martin Larry Jones on this section, 10 through 18. And I'm not saying every chapter is great, and sometimes he can take one part of the armor and maybe have three or four sermons on it, but it's usually pretty good. Okay, Martin Larry Jones. And so I would just have you think about this, that oftentimes Satan wants to attack your security in God. Our security in God is not based upon what we do, but it's based upon what Christ already did. We lay hold of that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, in the gospel. Lord, we thank you that you've already defeated the devil. Lord, we thank you that you give us that full, righteous, obedient life of Christ, Lord. We would have no hope. I would have no hope if it were not for the active, obedient life of Christ placed into my account, Lord. I would know, I would never go to heaven based upon how good I could be. I, I sin every day. Help all of us to understand that truth and that we would always be fighting the enemy, not with what we have done or will do, but based upon what Christ has already done for us in the gospel. We give you praise, Lord Jesus, and we thank you. Amen.